Morning, everybody. Well, I wonder how you are at making good decisions. Or are you somebody who really struggles to know what the right thing is to do? Decision-making can be really hard, can't it? Uh, like, I don't know if you've ever been to get a subway, uh, but whenever I, I, I go to get a subway, no sooner have I said what I want in my sandwich, then a myriad of questions come rushing at me, like I'm, I'm forced to choose which of these nine different types of bread would I like? Um, and then what type of cheese would I like on top? And then uh, there's about 15 different types of salad. Uh, which, which ones would you, would you want? And I'm, I'm desperately scrambling, picking them out. And um, there's a dozen different sauces. And just when you think you've got to the point where you can give your poor little brain a rest, they go, and what do you want to drink? And a cookie? It's relentless. I'm so tired by the time I've ordered a Subway, I barely have the energy to, to eat it. Okay, I'm being, being facetious there. I can always <laughs> manage to pack away a Subway, especially if a cookie's involved. But there's something about decision-making that we find really challenging, don't we? And it's so much part and parcel of our lives, it's estimated that we make about 35,000 decisions every day. And that's before we get to the really big ones, like relationships and family and schools and universities and work and houses and church, those kind of decisions that can totally alter the direction of our lives and the lives of people around us. I mean, I suspect every single one of us here has made one of those big decisions in our lives, haven't we? So just take a little moment to think about how you went about making that decision. Did you do it looking around you, looking at what others were doing, and weighing up what would give you the greatest gain, the chance to keep up with them in the here and now? Or did you do it looking with eyes of faith, looking to Jesus, uh, thinking through and trusting in the promises that God has given us through him? Now, I know that's a really blunt, stark option in terms of those two questions. I'd really like to nuance them a little bit for you, actually. I'd, I'd love to do that. But I find, as I come to Genesis 13 this morning, it won't let me. Because here we have these two men, Abram, Abram. I'm sure I'm going to... He's Abram at this point, not Abraham. But I'm, I'm sure I'm going to muck that up. So please forgive me as we go along. But we've got Abram and his nephew, Lot. And we're presented with the choice of living by faith or living by sight. Just in case you weren't here, last week we started this new series in Genesis that we're calling I Will. Because uh, throughout uh, this handful of chapters of the Bible that we're going to be looking at in Genesis, God says that little phrase 26 times. So the start of uh, chapter 12, God gives Abram some amazing promises. I will make you a great nation, he says. I will give your offspring a land to live in. I will bless you and all the families of the earth through you. I will, I will, I will. God is promising that he will be with Abram and his family. And he's going to more than look after them. And that if they trust him, they will indeed be blessed. They'll have the good life. But when famine strikes, Abram flips out and fails to trust God's promises. And he runs off to Egypt and he behaves absolutely appallingly, not least to his wife. 
until God steps in. Which causes Abraham to start having his quiet times again. As he returns to the place that he, he made an altar when he was called to follow God in the first place. And he starts calling out in the name of the Lord again. But then an issue crops up here in chapter 13 that forces both Abram and Lot to make a big decision. So let's pick it up in verse 5. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. So there's conflict brewing. The discussions are getting heated, the elbows are getting sharpened. What would you do in that situation? How would you resolve it? Well, Abram is the senior partner here. And Lot, I don't know. I look at Lot and I feel like he doesn't contribute a lot. Uh, I don't, doesn't contribute a lot. He doesn't do much uh, to, to back up his name. Every time he's mentioned, I just says, and Lot went with him. And Lot went with him. I feel like Abraham could have kind of gone, well, I'm the elder statesman here. And, and you don't seem to do that much. You're like Mary's little lamb. You just follow me around. I'll take what's mine and you can just have the leftovers. But he doesn't. As in verse 8, Abram says to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen. For we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. Uh, so Abram's choice is not to get, but to give away first choice. You know, if you're, you're a kid, I don't know if you remember this, you're a kid, and you, there's a piece of cake left, and you, you, have to, you have to divide it between you and maybe, maybe your brother or sister. How would you go about that in order to try and make sure you didn't get diddled and there was equal shares? You, you'd go, I tell you what, you cut, and I'll choose. <laughs> Do you see what Abraham is doing here with Lot? He's saying, no, no, you cut, and you choose too. Why? Surely he's going to lose out. Well, he did it because he's trusting in the promises of God, and so he's not putting material considerations first. Whereas Lot did, verse 10. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. Now that sounds like something we might find in a brochure in a travel agent, doesn't it? I mean, why wouldn't you go down to the Jordan Valley and set up camp there? I mean, it's well watered, it's lush, it's great for your, your flocks and your herds. I mean, it looks like a fantastic place, a comfortable and prosperous place to do life. And, and if you pitch your tents near Sodom like Lot did, then, I mean, you're within easy access to the shops and the entertainments of the big city. Win! Lot saw all of the advantages of moving down to the Jordan Valley. But he didn't see the dangers. He saw the perks, but not the perils. Because as we read on, there are hints blinking like warning lights from us, for us from the text. Telling us that Lot is not making a wise choice. So verse 10, he's moving to a place that is headed for God's judgment. 
Verse 11, we're told that he sets out towards the east. And to head east in the Bible is always to head away from God. And then in verse 13, he's moving in with people who are blatantly ignoring God, just living for themselves. And sure enough, by the time we get on to chapter 19, Lot has lost his family, his wife, and has only just escaped with his own life by the skin of his teeth. There was a lot of stuff that Lot didn't see as he lifted up his eyes. And so he pressed on blindly, just putting material considerations first. Whereas Abram lived by faith. Verse, 50, verse 14, uh, the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. So Abraham looks out at the land, but with the eyes of faith. He knows that God has revealed himself to him, even though he can't see him now. And he knows that God has promised him a great future, even though he hasn't experienced it yet. So God continues, verse 15. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. Do you see what God is saying? No need to go grabbing and getting everything that you can see. Everything you could wish for. When ultimately it is coming your way anyway. Trust me. Be patient. Wait on me. Let's just press the pause button, shall we there? And ask, how are we meant to read this as a Christian today? I mean, in lots of ways, it feels just so, so far off and distant from where we live. I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't have any flocks and herds that I need some grazing for. But actually, I don't think this is so distant from our situation today. God has revealed himself to Abram. And Abram is now living, trusting God, and, in, and looking forward to the promises that he's made him for the future. And I think we're basically in that same situation, but further along the timeline of history from where Abraham was. God has actually done a lot more revealing of himself to us now, ultimately through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who he sent into our world. And he died on the cross and he rose from the dead so that we can be brought back into a living relationship with the Lord God as our father. And to be a Christian now means to live trusting Jesus and looking forward to what he has promised, namely, the life of blessing in his new creation. And the Bible describes that new creation as the ultimate good life. Nothing bad there, everything good. And God at the center of it, finally visible to us. We can see him face to face. And it's described as an unimaginably rich life. So we're told that the main street there is of pure gold, 
like transparent glass. As someone has once said, here men worship it. There they walk on it. And so the question is, do we believe that that's where we're going? Because only if we do, will we be, will we, will we be able to make life choices like Abram does here in Genesis 13. The world now and, and then says, get what you can while you can. Earn all you can, buy all you can, save all you can, avoid tax all you can. But Abram doesn't. He gives. He gives away first choice. Because you don't spend a lifetime looking after number one when the number one in the whole universe is looking after you. So as we make our choices, whether it's the big life choices that only come around now and then or the 35,000 choices we make every day, let's choose like Abraham and not like Lot. Let me throw out a couple of challenges for us in that regard. Here's the first one. Don't put material considerations first in any choice. So, for example, apply this to our work choices, shall we? I'm not saying that you can't be ambitious at work or that financial packages and career opportunities don't matter. But when it does come to job hunting or job moves or possible promotions, those considerations should be secondary. The first consideration is how will this job or this move or this promotion or whatever it is, how will it affect my relationship with Jesus? My ability to follow him? So a friend of mine was asked at interview for a job once whether he'd be willing to lie for the company. And while the uh, financial package was really, really good. It was incredibly attractive. He asked whether he'd be expected to lie. And in a roundabout way, they basically told him that he would. And so he ended the interview there and then. There are some jobs that we shouldn't get into. There are some jobs we should probably get out of. There are some jobs we should resign from. Some compromises we should avoid. Some whistles we should blow, even if it means we might end up getting the sack. And with the urgent need that we have in this country to re-evangelize the nation and the importance of church planting as part of that, I'm praying and I'm hoping and I believe that some of us here might leave our jobs in order to pursue a calling to full-time Christian ministry. And that will probably mean a cut in income and a downgrading of our lifestyle. But I hope that we're willing to make those sacrifices because we believe more in the comfort and security of the promises of God than in material considerations. How about applying that to houses as well? Our housing choices. It can be so tempting to overstretch ourselves financially in order to get the dream house. And in doing so, we open ourselves up to the possibility of, of losing our freedom to work part-time if we might want to. Or give ourselves more to the children when they're younger. Or being generous with our finances and our hospitality. 
And even if it is okay financially, dream houses can often become a nightmare spiritually if they keep us and our children from fully participating in the life of a local church. Now, folks, I, I know that that's really, really challenging. <laughs> I find it really challenging. I've been thinking it through for myself this week. But I think sometimes in our decision-making, we, we assume that we, we can analyze and we can assess and that we can work things out by ourselves. And we forget the Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6 stuff, don't we? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Notice it doesn't say, don't use your understanding. It says, don't lean on it. I think we sometimes get that flipped around the other way, don't we? That we lean on our understanding and we use the Lord. But the text here is saying, no, no, plead with the Lord for discernment. So that the obvious material advantages don't dominate your decision making. And so as you lift up your eyes, you see everything that's involved. Will this stunt my relationship with Jesus? Will it disrupt my ability to worship him with everything? Will it desensitize me to sin and evil in the world around me? Will it calcify my marriage? Will it estrange me from my family? Will it make me and them more like consumers rather than servants that God calls us to be? You plead with the Lord as you look at Lot and you say, Lord, when I lift up my eyes, make me able to really see. And don't put material considerations first in any choice. Instead, like Abraham, anchor your faith. May the binoculars of your, your heart be on the Lord as your ultimate protector and provider. And like him, secondly, rest in the future that God has promised you. <coughs> because these are massive promises that Abraham has given here, aren't they? Uh, I mean, if you thought that he's just left with a scrappy little bit of land in Canaan, <laughs> think again. Look at what God says to him in verse 14 once more. Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. All of the land. Forever. It's going to be yours. It's coming to Abram and his offspring. We're going to see as we read on. I've already given you a hint of this, I think, that uh, Lot isn't going to have this land for, for, for long anyway. Like all possessions in this world, it will only ever be like a library book on temporary loan to him because God has promised Abraham and his offspring that it will be theirs forever. Now, how does that work? I, I, I really scratched my head when I was looking at this earlier on in the week, especially seeing as Abraham, in his lifetime, never got to, he never got into this land. He never got to live there. Now, stick with me. Stick with me here because this promise is still true. It must be, because when God says, I will, he never lets us down. And so thousands of years later, we get to the start of 
the New Testament, to Matthew's Gospel. And we find there a, a genealogy with the descendants of Abraham in him, as he is by then. <laughs> a family tree that ends with Jesus. And in Jesus, the promise is fulfilled and expanded and made even bigger. Jesus comes as the great seed of Abraham who will die on a cross and will rise again from the grave and who one day will redeem and remake this entire world. And now we anticipate and we look forward to that promised new creation. And we will live in it. And so now as we walk around this earth, we can look around to the east and to the west, to the north and to the south. And we can look at everything and say, everything belongs to Jesus. And one day, he will give it to you. As in Matthew 5, Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That's the promise that comes to us through Jesus. That those who abandon grabbing everything they can now and who come to Jesus to be forgiven and who are in that line of Abraham by faith and who worship Jesus, that's you this morning. You will inherit the earth. So when you watch Planet Earth 3, and as Richard Attenborough's dulcet tones uh, mutter away over these stunning vistas of snow-capped Patagonian mountains or bright green ninja frogs leaping in the Costa Rican jungle or all of the incredible things that we see in this wonderful planet we call home. You can go, yeah. Yeah, that belongs to Jesus. It all belongs to Jesus. And one day it will be part of his new creation and I will enjoy it forever. I think we have such a small view of what God has promised us, don't we? And if the incredible freedom that oozes out of his promises for us, Abram trusts the I will of God and he finds that he can, he can suddenly, he can afford to be generous to those around him. He can afford to be gracious and let others go first. And in a conflict situation, he can afford to give up his power, his rights and humble himself in order to take the heat out of what a situation that could have got really, really messy and be a peacemaker. It's such a liberating thing, isn't it? You do not have to worry about the future. You do not have to micromanage your life and your circumstances. You do not have to envy what other people are doing on Instagram if you trust in the promises of God. And while I know that there are some people in this church family for, for whom it costs you a great deal to be a Christian, to follow Jesus, Every day you feel the cost because you have said no to something that you desire. So please hear also, Jesus, as he says to you, my precious child, I love you. I will not let you down. I have a plan for you and I have a promise for you. You will inherit the earth. Trust in that. Don't give up. Wait on that. God absolutely has a plan to bless you and I. And so let's 
pray that the Lord would give us eyes of faith to see the beauty of his promises so we would rest and trust in and enjoy them now and for all eternity. Let me pray that through for us now. Let's pray. Our Father God, we look at this story and we see Abraham, this this man who messed up so, so badly. But then in this chapter, he really does trust you. He's willing to wait on your promise. Oh Lord, we, we pray that by your spirit, you would help us to be people who are willing to wait on you, willing to trust your promise, willing to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, willing to put you first and let others go ahead and be peacemakers, generous in every decision that we make, no matter how costly it is, because we know that you are worth it. Thank you that in Jesus, we have one who forgives our sin completely and who sets us free, truly free to live this radical life of humility and meekness and generosity. In Jesus' name, we give you all the thanks and praise. Amen.